It is good for us to be back tonight to be able to open the scriptures once again and to study events that will occur at the second coming of Christ. And what we're going to talk about tonight, I think that there are a lot of people who would prefer not to talk about these particular things because when most people think about the second coming of Christ, they want to think about it mostly about what happens to believers when Jesus comes back. The fullness of the gospel has been defanged today so much that people really don't want to talk about what happens to unbelievers. And it seems like most people have the idea that things are pretty much going to turn out all right for everybody. Uh, Some are going to do well and some will do a little bit less well, but everything is going to be all right. But as we look into these scriptures tonight and many others that we've looked at throughout the book of Revelation, we find out that it's not going to be all right for those who reject Christ as Savior. So what we have in the words of Scripture tonight are some very sobering words for unbelievers. And as we talk about these different things as we go through Revelation, we're really speaking about them with limited knowledge. I mean, of course, we have the Word of God that we're reading, but I don't think we really fathom uh, just how terrible things are going to be. We look at Revelation, and if you sit down at one reading, you could probably finish most of it in about a couple of hours or so. And then you just move on to something else, read something else. And we really never stop to think how terrible that seven years of tribulation is going to be for those who are left here. And it's not going to be a time that's just going to go by easily and very quickly, but misery every single day during that time. Now, in the earlier part of a book, the book, we read how that people will be so distraught. And I'm talking about unbelievers now. Uh, people will be so distraught by the pain that's inflicted upon them because of demons that are roaming the earth that they actually cry out for rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of God. And so they look for relief from their suffering only to find out that if their lives are taken from them that they wake up in eternity of hell where there is never any relief. As someone has said, forever is a long, long time. And when you talk about hell and the suffering there, it certainly is a long, long time. So this particular part of the message we're talking about tonight is for unbelievers. It's a warning that people would trust Christ before he comes back because you don't want to be plunged into the aftermath of the tribulation. Now, we have then in these verses that we're studying tonight some announcements that are made by angels. And uh, as they announce these different things, the tribulation is is in progress. But God is a long-suffering God, and he sees the wickedness of the whole world, and he sees how the world has been turned against him. And yet God still gives people space to repent. And so he gives them further warnings of judgment that's coming. Now, if you look in your Bibles tonight in Revelation 14 and stand with me as we read God's Word, we're going to start with verse number 6 and read down to verse number 11, and that'll be the portion of Scripture that we'll study tonight. Verse 6 says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, 
The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence Again tonight, we are so thankful that we're able to open up your word. And we see here, Lord, warnings of judgment that are coming upon those who don't know Christ as Savior. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us in this hour, at this time, that we would give people the gospel of Christ and they would believe so they would not have to face this terrible time of judgment that is coming. Lord, help us to understand these scriptures tonight and we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message is Announcements from the Apex. And as I explained last week, I'm taking the title from verse number 6 in this text, where it says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. And midst of heaven is actually a Greek phrase or a Greek terminology that describes the location of the announcements. And the location is high in the sky where the sun is at its apex at noonday. And this is the most visible place in the sky, and it's a place from which these angelic announcements will be made, a place where the entire world will be able to hear the coming judgment that's spoken by the angels. Now, in the last message, I I dealt extensively with that first angel and really the peculiarities of his mission, and I called his announcement the Proclamation of Belief. And we spent all of our time in that last message talking about uh, that angel. So I'm really not going to have time to look into all of that information again tonight. But I do want to remind you of this part of it, that this angel that we see there, this first one that comes out, does something that no angel would do today. God does not send angels to preach the gospel. The message of the gospel is not primarily the work of angels, and preaching is actually the work of God's church. And God has called us to be the messengers of the gospel. And so that tells us as the people of God that we need not expect that someone is going to do this job for us. God is not going to send any supernatural beings. As we studied last week, he's not going to raise anyone from the dead to preach the gospel. And so we need not expect that God would send anyone but us. And neither should the lost expect that they're going to hear some angelic messenger give them the gospel of Christ. If they don't heed the message that's being preached right now, then they'll die without Christ and they'll be plunged into an eternity of hell. But the main point that I wanted you to see about that is this belongs to a different dispensation of time. When this angel flies in the midst of heaven with the proclamation of the everlasting gospel, he's doing something that's very unusual because he's in a different dispensation of time. Today is the church age. Today, the gospel has been given to us. But as we look at this particular scripture, it's a time when the church has already been taken out of the world. Jesus has come. The church has been raptured. And so that gospel witness is not there in the same form. And so at that time, with all the church gone, now God has a different prerogative in how the gospel is preached. And so he comes along with this angel who preaches the everlasting gospel. Now, men will still be saved during the time of the tribulation, but it's going to be a very difficult time, a very hard time to preach the gospel, and uh, it'll be very difficult for the gospel to reach the entire world. And so I believe what this angel does is that he is actually the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 24, verse number 14. 
And that verse tells us that the kingdom will be preached to all the world when the end comes. Now, I think that this is God's method of fulfilling that verse. This angel does what men cannot do. Now, the Antichrist, of course, has been very busy throughout the tribulation killing the servants of God and trying to stop the gospel of Christ. Satan has been cast down to the earth, and he has his demons that are trying to stop men from preaching. And so God sends this angel, someone that the Antichrist can't touch and someone that uh, Satan even can't do anything with, And the angel declares the everlasting gospel of Christ. Then we also noted that this message is not only a message about the salvation of men, but it's also about judgment. Verse number 7 of the text says, The hour of his judgment is come. And so these angels speak more specifically about that just a little bit later on. And and, uh, they acknowledge that there is judgment, and we need to acknowledge it as well, that The gospel of Christ comprehends his judgment as much as it does his salvation. And you and I need to learn, even though people don't like the idea of hell and they don't want to hear you preach about hell, that a gospel without judgment would not be very good at all. It would not be good news for God's people. A a gospel without judgment is not good for the redeemed because what we seek to be delivered from is sin. We want to be delivered from the presence of sin. We want the entire world to be purged from the curse of sin. We don't ever want to have to deal with sin again. And so we thank God that there is judgment because God will take care of all of that for us. And one of the reasons why heaven is such a wonderful place is because God has passed judgment upon sin. So we see then this first angel who flies in the midst of heaven, and he makes an announcement from the apex about belief. The gospel is preached, and God in his mercy has given people another opportunity to repent and believe. Now, this evening, we're going to move on from that, and I want to talk to you about two other angels that we see in these verses. They also make announcements, and in verse number 8, there's an indication that the message comes from the very same place that this first angel gave the gospel. That's from the apex, very high in the sky, so that people are able to hear what this angel says as well. Now, if you'll notice verse number 8, it says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So we see number 2 tonight, the proclamation about Babylon. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now, if you haven't read a little bit of head in the in the chapters in Revelation, you might be a little bit confused about the importance of this particular message. And we do need to remember here that uh, some of the chapters in Revelation do not follow a chronological order. And so what we have in chapter 14 is a parenthetical chapter in which we're actually getting an overview of events that will take place later. And they're explained in more detail in the later chapters. But we do know this that even though this is the first mention of Babylon that we have in the book of Revelation, we do know that the Bible never has anything good to say about Babylon. Babylon always represents trouble. Babylon started out bad. It was bad, uh, continued to be bad, and it will end up badly. Babylon is a literal place in in Scripture. There's, of course, a literal city by the name of Babylon. But Babylon is also a symbolic place in Scripture, and it always stands for something that's evil, something that's bad. Now, it's much like when you read in the Scripture about Egypt. Egypt, of course, is a literal place. We know that. It's still in existence today. But Egypt was the place of bondage for God's people. 
And many times when the Bible wants to speak of or give a picture about darkness and about blindness, about people being lost in their sin, it will bring up this metaphor of Egypt and and represent this blindness and darkness by this country of Egypt. And so Egypt, when you see that in the Bible, it never has good connotations. So Babylon is exactly the same. It's no good, it represents wickedness, and it represents evil power that's used against God. Now, we're going to get much more into this when we get into chapters uh, 17 and 18, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with you about this tonight, but I do want to explain just a few things to you about the announcement of this angel. Now, first we can say that Babylon is the fountain of apostasy. In Revelation, Babylon actually represents two types of empires. One is a political empire, and the other is a religious empire. One we call political Babylon, and the other we call ecclesiastical Babylon. And whether we're talking about political Babylon or ecclesiastical Babylon or which kingdom that we're speaking of, both of them are going to end up being destroyed. Now, political Babylon is the empire of the Antichrist, and uh, most likely that's centered in Rome, although there are some people who believe that it will be in the, on the, in the original site of old Babylon, that Babylon will be rebuilt, and that will become the, the headquarters for the Antichrist during the tribulation time. Babylon, in that sense, refers to the whole empire, and the empire as well as the city are going to be destroyed at the end of the tribulation period. Ecclesiastical Babylon is a little bit different because that refers to the apostate religious system at that time. It's a religious coalition that's headed up by the false prophet. And this movement of the false prophet and this false religion is spearheaded by apostate Christianity, which has Roman Catholicism in the lead. Now, today, as you know, there are some of the uh, there is a movement, at least, uh, that, that, that's trying to get Protestants and Catholics back together. And so there's a dialogue that's taking place today, and it has for quite some time, among uh, evangelicals who have signed on to a document that's called the ECT. And that stands for Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And supposedly, uh, this pact is an attempt to get rid of the animosity that's existed all these years between those that are Protestant and Catholic, and it's an attempt to remove the barriers that prevent fellowship. Now, as we know, those barriers were erected during the Protestant Reformation, and the huge barrier is actually, actually a doctrinal one, and it's the one that caused Martin Luther in 1517 to nail the 95 Theses on the door at the cathedral, uh, the Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany. Luther, at that time, was protesting the sale of indulgences, which the Roman Catholic was... The Roman Catholics were, if you don't understand what that means, it actually means that they were selling the right to sin. That if you would pay the Roman Catholic Church so much money, then they would absolve you of your sins. They would grant absolution from it. Well, that led later to Luther's declaration of Scripture that salvation and forgiveness of sin is by grace alone through faith alone. Now, salvation by grace has really never been And salvation by faith has really never been a sticking point for Roman Catholicism. They do believe in salvation by faith. The thing that they have a problem with is salvation by grace through faith alone. So many of the evangelicals today are signing on to this document in which they're giving up that little word alone. And they're essentially saying that Roman Catholics have been Christians all along. But the truth of it is, 
If you preach a salvation any other than salvation by grace through faith alone, then you're not Christian. You actually deny the saving efficacy of Christ's blood, and you place man's work on par with Christ's work. Roman Catholicism is apostate Christianity, and they will welcome anyone under their wing who denies this particular truth of Scripture. And let me add something else to this as well, and I don't know how this will sit with many of you, but many otherwise good Christians are fooled by people such as Chuck Colson, for instance, who is a Roman Catholic, and he pushes this document called the ECT. And I would encourage you, if you have his books and you read those books, that you throw them away, stop reading those, because they may sound good to you. But trust me, the Antichrist is going to sound good as well. So during the tribulation time, the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope are going to be front and center of ecclesiastical Babylon, But what they don't really understand is that the Antichrist is not really interested in their idols, and he's not interested in their worship of the Virgin Mary, but he is interested in getting everybody together under the pretense that they're worshiping God, and the false prophet's intention and the Antichrist's intention is to eventually make everyone bow down to the Antichrist and to make him their God. And so political Babylon will be destroyed at the end of the tribulation, but ecclesiastical Babylon will be destroyed at the midpoint. And there, Roman Catholicism and the Pope and all those who have fled back to her and such things as the ECT, they're going to be sucked up into the worship of the beast, and the poor old Pope is going to lose the Pope mobile and all of that, and millions of people are no longer going to bow at his feet because all worship at that time goes to the Antichrist. So this is what happens at the midpoint, three and a half years into the tribulation. And by that time, the Antichrist has a grip on all the political kingdoms of the world and the religions of the world as well. Now let's back up here just a moment. We're going to back up in history just a little bit to talk about the apostasy of Babylon. Where did all of this get started? Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to Genesis chapter 10. And in chapter 10 of Genesis, we have the story here of the world's repopulation after the flood. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and everybody in the world is traced back, everybody now is traced back to one of those three sons. So if you'll look in Genesis chapter 10 and verse number 6, this tells us the story of Noah's son's Ham, Noah's son's son Ham and his descendants. So verse number 6 says, And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizram, and Phut and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah, and Sabta and Ramah and Sabteca, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba and Dedan, and Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Now, here is where we see that Babylon gets its start. Nimrod was a very wicked man, and he began this kingdom that's called Babel, or as we know it today, Babylon. And Babylon was actually the first place of idolatry that we find in the Bible. Now, if you go over to chapter 11, we'll start reading here in verse number 1. Genesis 11, verse number 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. 
And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now here at this point in the world's history, everybody spoke the same language. Uh, And that doesn't mean the universal language of love. I'm not speaking of that. Uh, Men love themselves, so in that sense it was a universal language. But everyone spoke the same language. And so these wicked men got together and they decided to build a city and their intent was to worship the heavens and they would worship the stars. And so they began to build this high tower and that would be the center of their worship. Now, Now there, I know a lot of people are confused about this, but the thought here is not that they were actually believed that they could build a tower that would actually like reach the moon or reach into the stars, but it's simply that it was a very high tower and that would be the center of their worship. And so this is the place where idolatry actually got started. The people had already forgotten the God who had just destroyed the world by a flood. And so these men with their wicked hearts got together and they decided that they would begin to worship idols. And so what God did was to come down then and confound their language so they had to leave off building. They could no longer understand one another and it was all chaos. And so they abandoned the place at that time and then people began to scatter into other parts of the world and they would group together with people who could speak the same language. So idolatry was first begun in the city of Babylon. That's the start of the whole thing. And from there, Babylon has always been the nemesis of God's people. It's always been a thorn to God's people. It's always been a temptation for them. And so you go on in the history of Babylon, and you see what happened there, that the next time that it's mentioned in Scripture is about 1,600 to 1,700 years after what we read in Genesis chapter 11. And there, Babylon appears when Assyria comes and takes the northern tribes of Israel into captivity. Now, I'm only going to give you one guess as to why Israel was overrun by the Assyrians and taken to Babylon. Anybody know what it is? Sin. Well, that's, that's a generalization for sure. It was sin. Idolatry. Idolatry was the reason. Now, listen to what it says in Second Kings chapter 17. Uh, this is verses 16 and 17. And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images, even two calves, and made a grove and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire and used divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight, and there was none left but the tribe of Judah only. So there, the ten tribes of Israel went into idolatry, and because of that, they lost their land, and the Assyrians overran them and took them into captivity. Now, later, the same thing happened to to Judah. 
several, a couple of hundred, little less than a couple of hundred years later, the very same thing happened to Judah. They also went into captivity in Babylon. And there's where we read in the book of Daniel the story of how Nebuchadnezzar built that great image. And he commanded all the people should bow down to his idol. And we know the story of how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do that, and so they were thrown into the fiery furnace. So this is the legacy of Babylon. It's always been one of idolatry. It's a very wicked place, and it's actually the place where all apostate religions of the world got their beginning. Idolatry still hangs around today, and idolatry has infiltrated Christianity, apostate Christianity, And that's led chiefly by Roman Catholicism, her rank idolatry. Now, we notice something else about this, and this is the fornication of alliances. Verse number 8 says, She made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornications. Now, that's very interesting terminology. It's certainly true that in the time of tribulation, it's going to be a, a period of unimaginable sin. All kinds of sexual sins, fornication, which includes homosexuality and premarital sex and marital infidelity, pornography, just about everything that you can imagine is going to take place in that time. But this particular part here is not primarily referring to that type of fornication. If you go back into the Old Testament, when Israel fell into idolatry, it was often referred to as fornication and whoredoms. And what it meant was spiritual infidelity. Now, this is when the people of God, those who are, you might say, married to God, instead of following God, begin to worship idols. And so it's the worship of false gods, and that's what it means by fornication. Now, here in this particular place, it means all the nations, all nations of the world then forsake the true God, and they begin to worship the image of the Antichrist. I also think that there is an allusion here to how Roman Catholicism has always tried to gain political power. And she's always gotten in bed with governments of the world, and those governments have partaken of her idolatry, and they've made her, in many cases, a state church, and they forced people to be Catholic or to be dead. And Catholicism has never strayed very far from those roots. I believe that if the United States had not been founded... And if we hadn't influenced the world with religious freedom, then Catholics would still be burning uh, uh, dissenters at the stake. I mean, the heart of this whole system has never changed. And that's because they're just like their father, the devil. And as the Word of God says, the works of the devil, they're going to do. Now, you may say, well, that doesn't sound very charitable, Pastor Smith, to say such things about them. But look at the history of it. Just look at the whole history of Roman Catholicism and you'll find persecution there. You'll find the people of God have been tormented by them and the world has actually become drunk with the excesses of Roman Catholicism. And really, the underlying cause, the root doctrines of what caused them to be that way have never been changed. And so we ought not to think that Roman Catholicism is anybody's friend because it's not. It's an apostate religion. When people believe it, they die and they go to hell. And the root doctrines that cause all of that persecution are still in place today. It's just that the world has changed to the extent that it's not permitted. But trust me on this. When the tribulation time comes, the world is going to go back to the very same thing again, persecuting people for their religion. So this angel comes along and he announces the fall of Babylon and everyone who joins in with her. And the word of God says that they are drunk with the wine of her fornications. They have made them drunk to excess. 
So that's the kind of language that we find in Scripture about Babylon. Jeremiah also uses the same terminology. In Jeremiah 51, verse number 7, it says, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. And that is the same as in the tribulation. And this angel announces that God is through with all of that. God is done with it. He's not going to permit it any longer. And so the angel comes and sounds judgment on the world. Well, we have this third angel then in the passage, and he makes another proclamation. Look at verse number 9, if you would. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So this angel brings another proclamation, and his proclamation is about the beast. So this angel warns what will happen when people receive the mark of the beast. Now we go back to chapter 13 in the end there, and we find, uh, of course, this story, this story about the... Um, Uh, the mark of the beast. If you look at verse number 16 in chapter 13, and he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 603 score and six. This angel is speaking at the midpoint of the tribulation, and it's apparently just before the Antichrist makes this huge push to have all of the world receive his mark. And that mark, of course, is a symbol of acquiescence to the worship and authority of the Antichrist. And the angel says that all who take that mark will experience God's wrath. Now, let's talk about that for a moment, and I'm not going to keep you long on this because we're going to talk about all this wrath that's poured out in the later chapters. So let's notice a couple of things about it. First is the wine of wrath. The vast majority of people during the tribulation will be completely enamored with the Antichrist. When he comes with this mark, they're gladly going to join in with him. Uh, I would say they're pleased as punch to join in with him because what the Antichrist brings is not that old stuffy Christianity. He doesn't bring anything about holiness to God. He doesn't talk about abstention from sin. And so he brings a system of religion that really pleases man. Men are self-pleasers. They love to indulge themselves. And so when the Antichrist comes along with this religion and with this mark, most of them are going to take that mark gladly. This lifestyle of sin that's permitted under the beast religion will be far and away more palpable than Christianity or the truth of God's word. And so they're gladly going to take that mark. They'll join in the revelry of what verse number 8 calls the wine of fornication. They'll gladly drink that cup because what's in the cup is all the excesses, all the vices, all the sin that the most wicked men can possibly imagine that they could do. But the angel comes with this warning and he says, if you drink this cup, or when you drink this cup, when you take the mark, you are actually drinking the cup of God's wrath. Now, here is the part that much of Christianity wants to leave out today out of preaching. And they'll tell you that God loves everybody, 
And so they want to do away with punishment. They want to do with the way, away with the fact that God hates sin. And if they do admit that God hates sin, then they'll say, but God certainly does not hate sinners. Now, that's a very popular saying, isn't it? Even a lot of Baptists use that. They say, well, God hates sin, but God loves sinners. Now, there is, of course, a sense in which God loves sinners because if he didn't, he wouldn't love any of us because all of us are sinners. But God loves sinners. The ones that he loves are the ones that he brings to salvation. And really, his love is actually the root cause of all people trusting him. But God does not love sinners that don't trust him. Now, here is the truth of it. God does not send sin to hell. Evil can't be punished in that sense. You can't punish evil itself. And so you have to punish those who do evil. And that's why God sends men to, sin, to hell. I mean, they're going to be in hell because of their sin. And God's wrath is real, and it's going to be poured out on sinners. And he's not pouring out wrath on them because he loves them. It's because he hates their sin, and he hates them and what they've done. So we notice again that the metaphor here is of drinking wine. And that's an illustration that people in John's day would easily recognize because when they drank wine, they would always dilute it with water. Only the very perverse would drink the kind of wines that we drink today. Well, not we, not present company excluded. But um, only the very perverse would drink alcoholic beverages like we have today, the civil and upstanding would simply not drink the types of alcohol content that we have. And so what the Jews would do, they would always dilute the wine with water so that in the end, what they had to drink was what we would today would not even be considered alcoholic. It contained too little of a content to make someone drunk unless you drank for a long, 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 long time. And in fact, of course, that's what the Old Testament says when it says in the book of Proverbs that if you spend long time at the wine, that you're not wise. And the reason is because if you stay there long enough, you drink enough of it, you're going to get drunk. So people back in in John's day, they would always dilute wine, so they didn't have those high alcoholic content. And so the, the picture here is of undiluted wine, which means that this is the strong stuff. And the meaning is that God is not going to hold anything back. These people receive the worst of God's wrath, and so there is no mercy. God is relentless in their punishment, and God will not give up on it. And the extent of God's punishment is seen in the next part, which is the time of their torment. Just to show you how much God hates sin and those who do it is the time of their torment. Look at verse number 11. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now, what is this? Well, it's nothing other than the doctrine of endless punishment. Some people would have us believe that there is no hell, that we have such a loving God that God's never going to send people there. And so they've invented a God of their own imagination because a God like that is not the God of the Bible. You see, if you're going to believe the part of the Bible that speaks about heaven and speaks about the peace of heaven and all the adjectives that are used to describe it, then you also must believe in a God who has created hell because the very same adjectives are used of hell. When it talks about everlasting and eternal and forever about heaven, it says the very same things about hell. Jesus spoke frequently on the subject. One of the places in Mark 9:44, he said, Where the worm, their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. So hell is an eternal place. 
So some people then realize, well, yes, there is a literal hell. I will grant you that. I mean, they do want to be somewhat orthodox and rather to deny it altogether. They're still afraid, though, that they're going to make God out to be not too nice if he has eternal punishment. And so rather than have a God who punishes people forever, they come up with the idea of annihilation. People go to hell, but they don't stay there. And just a flash like that, they're burned up and they cease to exist. And, of course, that defies just about everything that the Bible teaches about the eternal soul of man. Now, there is no language that could be clearer in Scripture on this and what we read in Revelation chapter 14. Now, we don't even need this Scripture, though, to teach us that hell is an eternal place, a place of eternal torment. Jesus has spoken enough about it. We don't even need this. But when you come to Revelation 14, all you can say is this is the nail in the coffin of those kinds of ideas because here we are definitely taught that hell is an eternal place and people who go there are going to suffer eternally. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. Now, do you know what happens when you remove fuel from a fire? It's not very long before the fire goes out, doesn't it? The smoke stops. And if people are annihilated in hell, then at some point, the full complement of the fuel of the fire is going to be exhausted. And what would happen? The fire goes out and the smoke stops. Now, people will try to get around these kinds of things, doing all kinds of different gyrations, but the Bible was written for people to understand. And this is very clear language. It's very pointed in its meaning. And you can't see, help but see that the full intent here is that the smoke goes up forever because it's a fire that's not quenched. The smoke goes up because the time of the torment of those that are in hell is everlasting. They're going to be there forever. They're not going to burn up. They'll be in conscious punishment forever. That can't be missed. Hell is a literal place with a literal fire with literal people that are suffering literal torment. And whether you want to believe it or not, the gospel of Jesus Christ also includes that truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the truth that God saves people from hell. Jesus saves people from hell. He keeps them out of a literal burning fire, out of torment, by washing them clean from their sins so there's no longer just cause for God to punish them. Now, if the gospel doesn't save us from something, if there is no hell then why do we even need the gospel? Jesus saves from hell. You know, this morning we sang the song, Jesus Saves, and that's what we're being saved from. You know, I like what R.C. Sproul said when we, a few of us went to hear him a few months ago, and he asked the question, what are you saved from? Well, if you look at this passage, what you're saved from is God. You're saved from God's wrath, and that is expressed in the literal fires of hell. Now, you're not going to run into too many people that when you go up to them and you ask the question, what are you saved from? That there's very many people who say, well, thank God I've been saved from God. And that's the actual truth of it, isn't it? You're saved from God. And that's the proclamation of this angel. Don't drink the wine of fornication by taking the mark of the beast. Be saved from God. Be saved from God's wrath. And that's the message, folks, that we have to preach. Today, it's your job, it's my job to tell people, trust Jesus Christ and be saved from God. Because you don't want to meet God without Jesus. There is no good outcome in that scenario. So, no, all does not turn out well for everybody. Some are not well off and others a little less well off. Some are saved from God. 
And some of them are going to have to meet him head on in all of his fury. Now, I surely hope that you're not in that group. Trust Jesus today and be saved from God. That's what the gospel is all about. Meet God in his love and not in his wrath. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we're able to open up your word tonight. And Lord, we are so thankful for Jesus Christ who has saved us from wrath, who saved us from the face of the Almighty God that we could not stand in his presence with sin upon us. And we thank you, Lord, that we are saved from an eternity in hell. I just ask you, Lord, that every person here tonight would have that understanding that no one would leave here without knowing Jesus Christ as their, as their Savior and their Lord. We just pray that you would bless as we sing tonight, and may we contemplate these things. May we be good witnesses of yours, because we know there is a day when Jesus is coming back, and we don't want to leave friends or family, acquaintances, neighbors, anyone behind. We want them all to know about Jesus Christ and help us to be witnesses of the saving gospel of Christ. Bless as we sing in our fellowship later and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's please.